Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krause. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? Ryan, what's good, dude? Good afternoon, brother Chase. How are you doing, dude? I'm I'm good. I'm a little a little on the sleepy side today, but we're here and we're gonna party and it's gonna be a good time. Um, <laughs> we are gonna have a great time. I actually have a great, uh, really corny joke to start I'm us ready. off today. Are you I'm ready? ready. For this? So, what do you call a, uh, a a family of whales? I don't know. Starts with a P. A pod. A pod. Yeah. What do you call it when you um, throw your fishing line into the into the river off of the uh, when you reel or no when you cast? Yeah. And what do you call a group of millennial males? <laughs> podcast. A podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's pretty funny. I didn't know where you're going with that. That's good. <laughs> I heard that today, and I said, "Yeah, I do have quite a few friends making podcasts." Yeah, that's days. right. We're yeah. one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I, I heard, did you end up getting that minivan? This week, you're, yeah, you're, speaking you're, of things that are not so millennial, I, yeah. I did. I did get a. Uh, I got a minivan this week. Yeah, that's Dope. right. That's right. That's the coolest. Uh, that's my. That's my new whip. You're as dadding. The, as the kids are you're saying. dadding so hard. <laughs> <laughs> you only. You only. You still only have one, and you got that. You just went straight to the minivan. You're like, let's just do it. <laughs> I do need to uh, up my collection of dad hats. I don't have very many dad hats. Oh but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I should get more of those. But the mini, minivan helps but, for but, sure. But Jess is doing October. She is, yes. That's next month. That's coming up quick and that, a hot minute. It was two months ago, three days ago. Now it's next month. You know how you know how that timeline goes. Yeah. yeah. So we need a place to put this boy when he's here, and minivans seem like the best place to do it. We're going to set up his crib in there. It's going to be really nice. Fit a whole rocking chair nice. in the back of that minivan. Are you telling people? Are you guys telling people names like na- like the name of, of your boy? Are you keeping that incognito? I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna just introduce him to the world, and he nice. will he will have a name when I'm, he's. I'm introduced. always so interested. Like, fascinated about um like where people fall in that category of like we don't care slash we really care yeah um because vive and i are kind of like somewhere in the middle um we always start off by like we really care but then by the time like month seven eight or nine rolls around we you're just tired of keeping this essentially yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, well this is also like a personality flaw of mine maybe it's a flaw maybe it's just reality of like I'm just really bad at keeping secrets, uh-huh. and I think I get this from my dad. So like growing up, my dad, like no, we knew, like without a shadow of a doubt, if December like second rolled around, anytime in December before Christmas, and if I asked him, Dad, what did you get me for Christmas? Without hesitation, he would just tell me. <laughs> like wouldn't even wouldn't That's even weird. yeah like, wouldn't, like literally wouldn't care like he's like well i'm not gonna lie to you i'm like we could just say i'm not gonna tell you right, right, um, right and right. he's yeah so and I, th- and I think partly my dad just really likes uh giving like being generous with people um and also i think i get it from him like it just like just no desire to keep a secret like at all like fun secrets obviously like serious secrets is, is mm-hmm. different i guess names mm-hmm. for me are more of a fun secret um but yeah it's uh We'll see. Maybe maybe the next one will be sneaky. But I say that <laughs> I've said that every time. And like I said, by because by the time seven month seventh and eighth rolled around, you know the 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 mom's beaten down. Like she's she's tired. Like she's yeah. just like <laughs> yeah. What's the use? Just yeah. just tell him. <laughs> That's just right. Well, we uh, we only decided on his name. I think 
maybe a couple of weeks ago. So you do the thing where you trade the list back and forth and cross off Athanasius, ones you don't huh? like. And yeah, so finally we made it, <laughs> finally rolled around to Athanasius. <laughs> Want to give him something to live, to live up to. What kind to, of nickname would you give to Athanasius? Uh, Athy? We, we have friends who named their boy Atticus after uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. So they call him Addy for short. Um, Isn't that a girl name? So uh, Addy? Yeah. Oh, well, A-T-T-I-E, uh, I guess, but... Uh, I have a sister named Addie, like Addison. So oh, like there you A-D-D-I are. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess you would call him Athy. But I guess, too, this is also, like, back in the day, feminine endings could also, like... Like, I think, like it could go to, like, guy's name more often than, like, today. Leslie was common. Yeah, that was a guy's name, there, yeah. There was another one. Um, there's, a, there's a lot. I feel like a lot of old English names were, like... Nowadays sounded feminine. But yeah, then sure. It was just like sure. I can't think of any on top of my head. Gender roles. That's a that's a topic for an. All right, guys. Today on day. Catholics with Bibles, <laughs> we're talking about gender ideology. And, right. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, the, our our word of the day here that we I tried to think of a clever transition between minivans and, and naming into uh, the word of the day. Uh, I'm not sure if I have. Well, okay. actually, no. I I did think of one. So, um, <laughs> if you look up the meaning for Ryan, my name, you'll often see something like little king or little ruler or something really? like that. And legend has it that you can trace it back to the Greek uh, name or not name, but uh, word arhon, which means ruler um, uh, uh, or or king. Sometimes transition. Hey, there, there's a little transition. Well, you know what? My name means to pursue. Chase. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, or the bank. Either yeah, that's one. Right. That's right. I, I remember one time I, I was asked by um, this uh, little little kid who like, comes from this big Catholic family. They're all named after saints. And so he just thought everybody like, had to be named after a saint. And so he, he comes up to me and he's like, what saint are you named after, Chase? And I look at him I'm like, it's a verb. Um, <laughs> but I remember, like, and I asked my mom, like, back in the day, like, I was like, why'd you name me Chase? You know, like, every kid asked their parents that at one sure, point, why'd you yeah. name And they're like, well, we thought it just sounded good. And I'm like, cool. Thanks, mom. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you thought it sounded good. Um, but cool. So, uh, for those that are just jumping on, what is up? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. For those that are coming back, how did you guys as well? Um, we're, we're still going through this little mini series on this book called The Unseen Realm. Uh, and today we're going to mix it up a little bit. We're, we He talks about a lot of different Bible passages. In part three. Um, in part three, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, Ryan and I kind of just picked the ones that we thought were the most relevant slash the most interesting. Um, one of the things that is, is always kind of funny uh, for me when I read you know, any non-Catholic commentator on these kind of like problematic passages of the Old Testament, dark passages, is... Um, a lot of the stuff that they quote unquote try to like discover. And I'm like, dude, ship sailed. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the conclusions they come to sometimes I'm like, well, that, you don't have an understanding of nature. Um, so conclusions are off. But anyway, so we're going to dive into talking about the fall um, and a little bit of what Heiser says about it, but also just like, I think what Ryan and I think about it and slash what the church. I mean, we are the hosts of the show. Is, that's so. right. So we can essentially talk about whatever we want. <laughs> you are our audience, your captive audience. You're captivated by what we talk about. Um, and then, and then we're going to d- get into Genesis six. Um, when it talks about the sons of God, what, what that might mean, some options there. Um, and then, and we'll kind of see where it goes from there. So um, yeah, the fall obviously happens in Genesis uh, three. Uh, if you didn't, if you haven't read Genesis one, two and three, just stop the podcast and like, just, just read that. You got to do um, it. You got to know them. Unless you're driving and then I'm sure you can Google it on audio Bible or something like that. But that, yeah, we should read the fall. Um, <laughs> it's important. So 
Um, yeah, so Heiser has an interesting approach to the fall. Um, and Ryan, filling in whatever holes I'm about to, what I'm about to say, but you know, essentially what his thing is, um, you know, almost that, that the serpent, I guess he spent a lot of time talking about how the serpent wasn't a real snake. Yes. And apparently that's, is that a, is that like a scandalous thing to say? Well, to, to uh, I mean, I mean, again, he's in an evangelical Protestant context wherein you're dealing with a lot of folks who at least claim to hold to biblical literalism. Right. So, you know, you can think of something like the best example of this is like the Creation Museum in Kentucky where they built a supposed life-size replica of Noah's Ark. Do you know about this? No. You got to go look up this wow. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a very literalistic read of the Old Testament, in particular Genesis. So for people who come from this very small, very new school of thought, uh, we ought to try and figure out at what stage in Snake's evolutionary history they could talk. Or Man. they had legs, Man. or they, you know. So. I, it, it's just, and so, and this is kind of a, this is a good thing where I appreciate reading this book because it reminds me that there are, I mean, a ton of Christians who are genuinely trying to pursue the Lord, um, yes. that literally think they, they read this as a literal historical every single yes, word factually right. happened, right. right? So he he knows that his audience is very uncomfortable with the category of myth for the Old Testament. So that's what he's pushing back against. Right. I'm just trying to say, like, I mean, it, it might sound goofy that he spends so much time on that, but for his yeah. audience, that's a big, it's a big gauge deal. whether or not they think he's heretical yeah. or something. So, like that. so that's so that's the one thing. He spends a lot of time just parsing out, like, whether it's an actual snake or not, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, I guess. Um, and then he, he kind of goes into this uh, this this idea that this, this serpent um, was a divine figure, which we talked about last week, which... I have my qualms with the, the, the category of divine. Um, we can say he's a fallen angel. Um, but yeah, so I guess um, let's just dive into like the, those ideas. I mean, you know. Well, the, the, the sorry. No, yeah, go on. Well, the, the point is that uh, whoever this, like the Satan character in Job, whoever this serpent figure is, he's uh, clearly a member. He's a, he's a created character, but he's also a member of God's divine council who yeah. has transgressed uh, yes. the boundaries of his... Uh, of his domain there and rebelled against God. That's kind of right. the point. Yeah. And so um, the Hebrew word for that, that word serpent is uh, nahash. Um, Got to add some phlegm to that word. Hash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's nahash, uh, which uh, can be actually translated as Leviathan as well. It's translated Leviathan elsewhere in the Bible um, or like dragon, if you will. So uh, there's a few different like kind of, I guess, interpretive options to like, just looking at this reality of the fall in general with Eve and the serpent, Adam and all these things. Um, so the, the one that I lean towards, not saying it's right, not saying it's, this is the only interpretive option, um, is that uh, Nahash being the Hebrew word there um, was used, was used to imply not a cute little garden snake, but an actual like terrifying Levi- Leviathan dragon figure. Cause that sea monster. Yeah. Sorts. So this is actually terrifying figure. Um, that terrified Adam and Eve, right? Um, terrified Adam to the extent where he didn't say anything, right? Because he was scared of, you know, if he was there, mm, right? Mm. Um, and terrifying Eve to such an extent to where, like, she felt like she didn't have a choice but to do what this dude said, right? Yeah. Um, like I said, this is just an option. It's not like there's other ones out there. I just like this one. Um, but anyway, uh, point of the story is we have the threefold lust that is intrinsically involved in the fall of Eve, right? The tree... Uh, was pleasant to look at, right? Which for, for lust, you read First John, you'll see in there. We've talked about it in the podcast before, I think. 
Um, and it was also a delight. So it was a delight to the eyes. Um, it could bring them knowledge of God and it was uh, good to eat, right? So this classic threefold lust. Um, so it was one of these things where um, it, this story didn't necessarily happen literally in this way, right? Now we do have to say as whole as Catholic, there was a first man and a first woman, yes, right? Were right. their names actual Adam and Eve? Probably not because Adam in Hebrew just means man, right? right? And, right. Ish, and, and, Ishanisha. and ground. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and earth. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And so basically um, this Leviathan figure uh, comes and it's not just some cute little garden snake. It is a, a fallen demon, right? It's, it's just evil, which I agree with Heise. Like it's a fallen demon figure, like contrary to God. Um, but it was really this threefold lust. And, and, the, and the, the problem was twofold. One that yes, Eve ate it, um, but more so that Adam didn't protect her. He didn't till and keep the garden like he was supposed to. But then on top of all that, when God asked what was wrong, Adam didn't seek forgiveness. Like he didn't seek repentance, right? So the fall wasn't just disobeying God, but rather it was disobeying God without trusting that God was good enough to forgive the the sin. Anyway, um, Heiser doesn't really take that approach. Well, that sounds like Augustine. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure where you're... I probably stole it from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which he'll actually later call out. and He, he doesn't cite... It's frustrating. He doesn't cite a source for his Augustine thought there, but he does say, well, this is Augustine's view of this thing is errant and what matters is the original context. Yeah, but, right, uh, right, right. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that this uh, whole section is interesting because it brings up a phenomenon that we see a lot, especially on the internet nowadays, and uh, it gets us thinking critically about how the Bible does this too. So he's going to talk about uh, Isaiah 14. He's going to talk about how Isaiah is taunting the king of Babylon um, using the curse language from Genesis to talk about how this is this same fate that befell the serpent is going to happen to the king of Tyre, crawling on your belly, eating right. dirt, all of that stuff. Now, if you're a biblical literist, this is kind of problematic because, like, where is the evidence that such a thing ever happened to the to the king of Tyre? Right. But I think that we do very much the same thing today when you'll hear politicians described as in, like, comic book villain imagery. Mm, like, yeah. if somebody makes a meme out of Governor Greg Abbott that makes him look like Darth Vader or something, like, we're supposed to understand that this person thinks he's a bad guy. Right. Not yeah, that he's a literal yeah, character yeah, yeah, yeah. from a sci-fi story. Yep. So uh, that's just important to keep in mind. When the, when the book of Jude um, talks about the antinomians, talks about the bad guys in the letter of Jude, in terms that would remind the original audience of the Watchers from Genesis 6, Jude's not saying that these guys that we go to church with are actual fallen angels. Like, that's right. not what's going on. Yeah. You're supposed to just read it and go, oh, wow, they're really bad guys, because look at the look at the language he's using to describe them. Right. Um, so, Hyperbole is a form of rhetorical, is a rhetorical tool. Yeah, right. Hy right that right. is effective. Yes. Like, um, it, we've been doing it for as long as we've been, been on the earth. There's yep. been hyperbole. Yep. yep. And even, and even Jesus uses it, right? Jesus mm -hmm. says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and, yes. and all these things. And that's obviously hyperbole. Like Jesus isn't advocating mutilation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I've always said English teachers make good Bible readers because they would, they would know such a thing, wouldn't they? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even too, like, it, you know, it reminds me of, you know, origin, right? You know, origin, <laughs> not St. Origin, just origin. Sure. Um, and it's because he, he read eunuchs for the kingdom and took it yeah. Real yeah. literal. Really and, unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and so the church is like, oh, let's, he's a really smart guy, but he, he's a little off base mm -hmm. uh, with that mm -hmm. one. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so when it comes to like the, this, his, his conversation of the fall in general, 
Um, one of the things that is kind of interesting too is he, he brings us to Ezekiel 28, right? Um, and so, uh, and this is the thing I think is just interesting that I, for, I don't think I disagree with it or anything. It's just something that's interesting. So in Ezekiel 28, he's talking uh, to uh, the king of Tyre, right? Um, and he's, is it the king of Tyre? Yeah, the king of yep, Tyre. Yep. Um, and this is Ezekiel, and he's trying to condemn the king of Tyre. So this, this is what, so is Ezekiel 28, uh, verse, starting in verse 12. So this is addressed to the king of Tyre. Um, but then the question is, who's it actually talking about? So <laughs> uh, we read this. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he lists some stones. Um, and then he says, on the day that you were created, they were prepared, the stones. With an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Um, and then it goes on to talk about, basically, I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before the kings to feast uh, their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you prof you profaned your sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just think this is fascinating. But anyway, so the question is, um, who is he comparing the king of Tyre to? Right. 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 Um, and so, and this is something that Heiser points out, because on its surface, and basically everybody assumes he's comparing him to Adam. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. who was appointed as a priest king to guard and to till, who fell, and which you know I think is still a valid option, right? But what Heiser does is he actually relying on the Hebrew text. So in verse fourteen we read this: "With an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you." So that term "with" is really really important, right? Um, but that's actually from the Septuagint translation. In the Hebrew, it's not "with." It says you are an anointed guardian cherub, right? And so Heiser actually says that this passage is actually referring to Satan or like, well, the serpent. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, which is, I just think is interesting. So, you know, basically I've been wrestling with this trans translation for like, since we started preparing for this podcast and like I nerded out pretty hardcore and I won't <laughs> get into that. Um, but anyway, I'm still actually un undecided on which translation I like better. Um, I don't think either is wrong. I don't see, I don't see a problem with saying it referred to Satan necessarily. I think um, the the rhetorical effect is probably the same in, in, yeah. in both instances. Like, whether you think it's Adam and you fell from a very high place of uh, grace in the created order, or whether you think it's talking about Satan, you fell from a very high place in heaven, uh, you were a very important, respected uh, ruler of peoples, and now your fate is going to be the same as these characters yeah. back here. Yeah, hyperbole is huge. Um, yeah, so anyway, if you really want to nerd out, you can buy a Greek-Hebrew Bible, um, or I guess it's not a thing. You can buy a Greek-English Bible and then a Hebrew-English Bible and then compare and contrast. But um, but yeah, so that anyway, so a lot more can be said about the fall, um, but the next section that he talks about, one of the next things he's talking about is, is Genesis 6. Yeah, right? big, spooky, um, weird passage, Genesis yeah, 6. Yeah, so this is one of those, like, problematic passages of the Old Testament, which is essentially, like, everything we're talking about. But um, <laughs> so... Uh, for those who don't know, so Genesis 6, 1, we read this. When men began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his days shall be 120. Anyway, so it goes on. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God 
came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Um, and anyway, they were, ended up being really wicked and awful. And then the flood happened. Anyway, it's all out. Um, so yeah, so the sons of God. Um, yeah, who are these sons of God? Yeah. Did you see the movie uh, Noah that came out like... <laughs> 2014, I think. I, it I was. actively avoided that you one. You didn't watch it? No, that's oh, with that's Russell Crowe, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's not a great movie. That's what I heard. That's why I actively it, avoided it. It's really it. silly, but but it really does dive into the uh, the ancient Jewish um, midrashim and all of the oh, uh, the yeah. legends that surround the the text here. So it's if you're like a Bible nerd, it's a cool movie. It's not a good movie, but you're sure, like, sure. oh, I remember that from my Hebrew class. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the kind of stuff it is, but it definitely takes that interpretation that the uh, the Nephilim here are the Watchers from the Book of Enoch, which is mm -hmm. a non-canonical uh, book of Scripture. I think First Enoch, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that the only Christian communion that actually accepts Enoch is the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which are not in line with the yeah, 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 not a part of the Catholic Church. Yeah. But um, in that story, these these Nephilim, these Watchers, are actually angels who, of course, have uh, children with the uh, the daughters of men, and the kids grow up to be giants, and they teach violence to the human race. So it's, right. a, it's a really wild story. And, yeah. and the movie takes that that quite literally. Yeah, um, they go deep into that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's more explosions and, and, and boxing between giants that can happen that way, you see. It's better for Hollywood. That's right. But... Uh, yeah, what do we uh, what do we think so, about this whole fallen angel and daughters of men? So this is this is deal. when uh, we can be exegetically precise and accurate with, but also still use what we know from common sense knowledge, um, nature, to, in order so that way we don't misread or read into the text. Right. So this is, I think, uh, a very Heiser unfortunately falls into this. We talked about this last week too. Where if you don't have a sense of nature and the nature of things, of just how reality is, like ontologically, then you can get in some weird translations and some weird interpretations, I should say. Um, so Heiser like actually thinks these are angels who like literally had babies. Like, well, I, you know? I think he thinks that the author of Genesis thinks that. Right. Sure. I don't know. Okay. I don't know if he would if you press him on it, I don't think he would say that. But yeah. uh, he definitely thinks that for the author of Genesis, this was a literal event that. Okay, that's fair. So yeah. nuance there. So, um, but once again, as as people with the understanding of nature, the way it is, that we don't have this, you know, alchemist tendency of of you know nominalism and all these things. Uh, we as Catholics, we you kind of have to address the fact that. Uh, there's different natures of things. So we have a divine nature, God, Trinity, Triune, Godhead, all that stuff. Uh, we have angelic natures, right? So they're not corporeal at all. Um, they can think and they can choose, um, but they do not like, have physical bodies. Um, and we also know this from Tobit, right? So like the angel appeared and he's like, I just appeared to be eating and drinking. I did not actually like, you know, all these things. Oh, right? yeah, I forgot um, about that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so uh, angels don't have a physical body there, but they're, at the same time, they're not uh, omnipresent, right? Angels are where they're act acting, right? Um, so like, it's not like St. Michael the Archangel is in all places at all time protecting every single person at the exact same time from Satan, right? But he can act in particular places in particular times 
and where he's acting his presence is. So, I mean, you're bringing out there some nuances of the, the Catholic metaphysic that's been developed yeah. over the ages and, and centuries. Whereas if you're just looking at the text of the Bible itself, you wouldn't, you wouldn't right. be able to bring that out. Right. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. But we have an understanding of nature, right? Yeah. So the angelic nature. And so I say this all because if angels don't have corporeal bodies, they can't reproduce because they don't have a sexual organ in order to reproduce. Now, Chase, aren't you just talking about like how many angels can fit on the head of a pen here? Like, <laughs> what does this have to do with my daily life with our Lord <laughs> Jesus Christ? And this is a real question you can yeah, see. Yeah, like, well, how right. would you respond to that to that criticism there? Uh, well, I would say that if you think angels can reproduce with you, that means they could still reproduce with you today. You ought, maybe like, you ought to be a little bit worried about that. Yeah, it means, I mean, it, it, so why aren't demons currently having physical babies? Yeah, like, sure, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, That's a good um, Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's just bad theology, right, in, in almost every way. Well, I think we just have to keep, we have to, we have to say that as Catholics, we're much more comfortable with the category of myth in the biblical text. Yeah. That just doesn't bother us. That's right. not going to keep us up at night. Yeah. Do you, um, do you know the hymn, You Watchers and Ye Holy Ones? Mm-mm. So this is a hymn that's super popular in Anglicanism, at least for about the past hundred years. And uh, I don't think I've actually heard it in any Catholic context, but the first verse is, uh, Ye watchers and ye holy ones, bright seraphs, cherubim and thrones, raise the glad strain, alleluia. Talks about all the choirs of angels in oh, there. Nice. But it's, it's calling on... Um, this it's calling on as many different spheres in the created order as possible to praise the Lord. Oh, you nice. see this in like the, the Psalms uh, and stuff. Yeah, the yeah. Psalms, uh, the the Song of the Three Young Men. Uh, sure. It, yeah, Psalms all the time. Um, and, and even Jesus talks about how the the stones and the trees will praise him if, yeah, if right. people won't. Yeah. But I think that's the proper Christian response to. Um, even crazy, wild, mythic stories like these. Like the problem, whatever you think about the Watchers, the problem with the Watchers is the same problem with other sinners who don't um, abide by the laws that, is God, that God has set up to govern the world, right? Sure. That's, that's part of the point here. Yeah. And so, you know, just, just to leave this Sons of God topic with a possible interpretive option besides, you know, uh, that doesn't dismiss the myth, but rather it just it makes the myth make more sense, if you will. Um, is that the the Sethite option, right? So uh, if you haven't read Genesis one through six, this might not make a terribly large amount of sense. Uh, so read Genesis one through six. But anyway, this guy named Seth. Seth's awesome. He's great. Um, Seth, the, the, one of the sons of Adam, right? Um, and so Seth was a righteous man. So Seth was um, a righteous man. But more, so going back a little bit though. Whenever you, when you, when you read Genesis 5, we read this, Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, right? Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them. Uh, man, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became a father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, right? So it, for, the, for the writer of Genesis, Adam was a... Not, not quite a literal son of God, but pretty darn close to a literal, like he was God's son, right? God's son. Um, so son of God, right? And then at the, once again, that same language was used for Adam begetting Seth, image and likeness, right? So the author's trying to show us implicitly or even explicitly that this Seth was a true son of Adam who was a true son of God, therefore Seth being a true son of God in that sense, right? Um, and so this... Seth had, got married, had a lot of babies, and there were, there were 
called the sons of God. So this line of Adam's descendants were called sons of God, right? They were righteous, presumably righteous, right? Um, but they fell, right? So this is an, an option that I did not come up with at all. I'm just telling you um, that these sons of God are just Sethites, right? That fell from righteousness. Eventually they got corrupted, mm-hmm. essentially. I don't know. Have you heard that one before? I have. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think until today I realized that they were the Sethites. That, that, uh, mm. That's a new one for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a, and like I said, that's just an option. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not like dogmatic by any means. Um, <laughs> I just like it. Like it just, <laughs> it just makes sense of the text without trying to dismiss anything offhand. It's not trying to dismiss the text. Now you can say that now Chase, like that's not what the Bible literally says. Um, uh, you know, obviously I, I built a syllogism and I tried to connect some dots there. So, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. is always a hard thing about when you're trying to be, just be just totally black and white, totally just, um, because the, the reader, the writer of Genesis, the writer of all these biblical books, assumes the audience knows more than what is written, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we have to then kind of fill in the dots. Okay, what is the writer assuming that his audience knows that we obviously, we've lost, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway, all these things. Um, and so I guess lastly, you wanted to chat about Enoch real quick. So we mentioned first Enoch. So real quick, what first, second, and potentially third Enoch like, just like Enoch, who's that guy? Where is he coming from? Why well, do we have first Enoch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Enoch fills in a lot of the... Uh, if you're going to read Genesis in its original historical critical context, you're going to bump into a lot of things that sound like the Book of Enoch. And the Book of Enoch is, an, is of course, not considered a part of uh, Holy Scripture by the Catholic Church. But like a bunch of Jews read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, You can think about it as um, as fan fiction, right? So the, <laughs> it, it, in Enoch, the, well, in Genesis, there's this great little section about Enoch where it says, and Enoch, it's a, it's in a genealogy, and it says, right, and Enoch was not five. because God took him. Yeah. And so... Uh, and Enoch it, had lived 65 years. He yes. Became the father. And yes. Enoch walked with God and all these things. And, and so uh, the mind starts going, well... Uh, what, uh, how was Enoch so holy? And what did God do with him? And did he really ascend into it heaven? Says, for like, God took him. For God took him. For God took him. Right. So uh, the legends spring up around this character, Enoch, and what could make him so holy, and what might he see, and what, what, what did he see when he was uh, taken up into heaven and all of that stuff. And so that's where a lot of the talk about the Watchers comes from. So if you want to look at that stuff, um, you can just go read Enoch online for free. Yeah, it's a lot just, of fun. Just Google first Enoch and ready your mind to be blown. And, and, <laughs> and you'll be able to see references to Enoch in the letters of Jude and in First Peter and in Genesis. So The Jude one, I think, is the most interesting one. You yeah. don't have to chase that rabbit hole too much. But it's like the early Christians like knew of Enoch. And like, yeah, absolutely. he was a boy. Like he was, he was Enoch, my yeah, man. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, Enoch's kind of like an ancient superhero. So yeah. He, he pops up uh, in some secret ways in the Bible, which are which are kind of fun. I wanted to talk about Second uh, Kings chapter five, and this is a section that Heiser talks about here towards the end of our section. And I never actually, so I've read the Bible a couple of times, not to toot my own horn here. <laughs> I've read through the Bible a couple of times, and this is just one of those things that I never you read over a couple of times and you never really notice, and it it, uh, it never really makes sense to you. So I want to just read this short selection from Heiser to set it up because he sets it up better than. I can do it. According to uh, 2 Kings 5, at the suggestion of a captive Israelite servant girl, Naaman decides to seek the prophet Elisha for a cure for his condition. He travels to Israel, but Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him in person. He sends a messenger to tell the hero to wash himself in the Jordan seven times if he wants to be healed. Insulted, Naaman resists. 
then relents at the encouragement of his servants. He does as instructed and emerges cleansed from his skin disease. So Naaman goes back to the prophet who at this time chooses to speak with the Syrian and then he enters us into 2 Kings 5, uh, 15 through 9. When he returned to the man of God, he and all his army, he came and stood before him and said, Please now, I know that there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. So then, please take a gift from your servant. And he said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I surely will not take it. Still he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, then please let a load of soil on a pair of mules be given to your servants. For your servant will never again bring a burnt offering and sacrifice to other gods, but only to Yahweh. As far as this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master goes into the house. Okay, so he goes on there. But the whole point is that Naaman here uh, wants a piece of soil. Wants some dirt. He wants some dirt. Well, from, just, from, Adam was made of dirt. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wants some soil from the Holy Land on which to make uh, sacrifices here and offerings. And Heiser admits that we don't actually know what he did with the soil. But this is this little theme here that Heiser brings out is very much in keeping with the theme of the passage as a whole. There's a, a divine realm and there's a sort of earthly realm and God's design from the beginning was that the whole world would be like Eden. There would be no division between these realms. They would be one. And this is of course what the New Testament envisions when Jesus says that uh, in the Lord's Prayer that um, Thy will be done on earth as it right. is in heaven. Like literally the entire book of Revelation. Yeah, the, the entire book of the, Revelation. The inbreaking of the kingdom, yeah, right? Yeah, New Jerusalem floats down from heaven and just swallows the earth up and recreates it. So the, the realms are joined once again. Uh, but this idea of a holy place symbolized by the dirt that, that Naaman wants here to do his worship in is a really great basis on which to talk about sacramental theology. Like yeah. um, God desires to dwell in a place with human beings, yeah. which is good news for us. And also yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of God's uh, use of Gentiles to spread his kingdom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because like a Gentile, like Naaman, like, not a Jew, not an Israelite, spread the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah. It's why the, uh, and, and a lot of churches have this, but it makes me think of the Josephat Basilica in Milwaukee where above their altar is a... Uh, is a little inscription, Ece Tabernaculum Dei Cum Omnibus. Um, hey, we, speak from, a, we speak American here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, from the book of Revelation, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Um, that's the, the I mean, I, I think for Catholics, this is one of the cooler sections of, of Heiser's book that he's trying to dry out. If you yeah. have the sacramental theology uh, in, a, in accordance with all of this cool, biblical, weird, mythic stuff, sure. um, this really st helps you start to make sense of God's greater vision and plan for the world. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us once again on our show, Catholics with Bibles. We're diving into the next section of Heiser next week. As always, thank you so much. My name is Chase. I'm Ryan. <laughs> I forgot where I was there for a second. <laughs> That's right. We hey, we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. Alrighty, y'all. Well, as always, thanks so much for joining us. And if you have any questions about what we're talking about, if Ryan and I very quickly went over something that you're like, wait, hold on a second, go back. You can always just reach out, like shoot us an email. You can you can Google us. You can go to St. Teresa's website and find our emails there. Uh, and we're always open to questions and open to clarifying too. Um, and as always, if you have not shared Catholic Bibles with your friends and family, what are you doing? Go share the podcast with everybody you know and love because that's true love right there. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. God bless.